0: This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, a special town hall all about alternative policing models. As communities examine the way that traditional policing is currently done, we see more and more questions on how police respond to people in mental and behavioral health crises. How and where is this current model coming up short? And what are some alternative approaches that could be more effective, less expensive, could result in better outcomes, and most importantly, could save lives? We've convened an expert panel to talk about these models, their benefits, their costs, and their implementation. This was recorded live on the evening of May 4th and our producer Kat Pipkin introduces our guests.
1: Dr. Amy Catherine Watson is a professor in the social work department at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Her research is focused on police encounters with persons with mental illnesses and the crisis intervention team or SIT model. She's also conducted research on mental health courts and prison reentry programs. Her current work is looking at models to reduce and eliminate or eliminate the role of law enforcement in mental health crisis response, excuse me. Tim Black is director of consulting for the White Clinic in Eugene, Oregon. Whitebird Clinic launched CAHOOTS, Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets, as a community policing initiative in 1989. Tim has an extensive background in direct service, harm reduction, and mobile crisis intervention. He's currently focused on assisting communities and municipal governments in the development and implementation of programming based on the CAHOOTS model of behavioral health first response service. We're so glad you're here tonight, Tim. And finally, a fan favorite, Senator Monka Dengra is the deputy majority leader of the Washington State Senate. She's also chair of the Senate Behavioral Health Subcommittee and vice chair of the Senate Law and Justice Committee. She was selected as one of the Washington branch uh excuse me she was selected as one of the washington branch of the national alliance of mental illness as 2019 behavioral health champions for her commitment to improving the entirety of washington's behavioral health system senator dengrove serves as a deputy prosecuting as a senior deputy prosecuting attorney with king county prosecuting attorney's office as chair of the therapeutic alternative unit she helped develop and oversee the regional mental health court She's also a former instructor at the Washington State Criminal Justice Training Commission for the 40-hour crisis intervention training for law enforcement officers. Before we start, we want to note the importance of this work and to acknowledge that outcomes are often literally life and death. Because of that, we very much want your input, and we want to make sure your questions are answered. So we're going to be devoting the last 30 minutes directly to Q&A. Dr. Watson and Tim, as well as uh, Senator Dengra, I have generously agreed to stay to answer as many of our questions as we can get to. So please enter them in the chat bar as we go. And with that, I'll turn things over to our moderator, Stephen Cox.
0: And thank you so much, Kat, for all of that. And welcome to our distinguished panel and certainly to our many distinguished guests watching here tonight. We are honored and grateful to have you all here. And before I start, I want to acknowledge that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, we are gonna spend the bulk of our time tonight talking about alternative models uh, for behavioral and mental health crises. But I'd like to kind of start by getting a context of both where we are and I'd like to define our terms a bit, if we may. So, Dr. Watson, and you've asked me to call you Amy, so I shall, let's start with you. What What do we mean when we talk about a mental or behavioral health crisis?
2: That's basically a situation where someone's experiencing stressors that overwhelm their capacity to cope. So, those stressors could be acute symptoms of mental illness, could be life disruptions or loss, interpersonal conflict. It's usually a combination of things that really overwhelm that person. And they may be experiencing significant distress, um, agitation. Um, They may be feeling suicidal. They may be very frightened um, and feeling out of control and disoriented.
0: And people in this scenario often can include people with developmental disabilities as well.
2: Absolutely.
0: So we know that this can vary, but under the current police model, give us an idea of what generally happens when police are called to respond to a mental health crisis situation, Amy. What what transpires?
2: So a call may come in to 911, and they dispatch officers oftentimes. One or two officers will arrive on scene. Um, you know, they'll talk to who's there. And, you know, depending on the situation, and how officers approach the situation, it may escalate, um, or they may be able to de-escalate the situation and sort of work through what an out- a good outcome would be. And that could be just resolving it on the scene. It could be transporting the person to an emergency department or a crisis center, or if there's some criminal content, there may be a- an arrest. But they're relatively limited in what their options are.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, and we're going to have a number of questions about this, particularly when we get to the CAHOOTS program as well. But in this instance, when 911 is is currently called in these situations, there are generally two responses, in my understanding. Either a police officer is dispatched to his armed or an EMT. Who makes that determination in that moment?
2: My understanding is that you have a call taker who assesses it and makes the decision Um, in communities that I've worked in. Oftentimes, if it's a mental health call, they'll be sending both to the scene.
0: And I want to get into some of those those blended and hybrid scenarios uh, in earnest here in just a moment. But, you know, Tim, when you and I were speaking before we began uh, in, in preparation for all of this, you mentioned that you feel that dispatch codes themselves can some ways inform the way that police respond. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit.
3: Yeah, you know the the one really prime example that comes to mind is is the concept of the EDP, the emotionally disturbed person, uh, and and frequently we hear that you know this code is used by police dispatch and and really labeling a situation as as emotionally disturbed person really in. in ONE, REDUCES THAT INDIVIDUAL TO THEIR SET OF SYMPTOMS IN THAT MOMENT, uh, BUT ALSO REALLY INFERS THAT THERE'S THIS PERCEPTION OF DANGER um, OR, YOU KNOW, THIS UNKNOWN ELEMENT AND THAT THAT REQUIRES OFFICERS TO THEN ENTER INTO THOSE SITUATIONS WITH A LOT OF you know, potential means of force, you know, alongside that there's this assumption that because this person is disturbed, that inherently they're going to, it's going to be a dangerous interaction. And that is just, you know, really ultimately dangerous to the patient uh, and really reductive, you know, it, it denies the whole person uh, that's experiencing that crisis. And indeed, I will note that the
0: Washington Post reported as long ago as 2015, that 25% of uses of lethal por- force by police involve someone with a mental illness. Um, Amy, I know you've done uh, a lot of study on how race plays into current response models. What can you tell us about that?
2: So, I mean, we know that we all know about implicit bias and it exists everywhere, not just in policing. So it can come into play, you know, when if there's a citizen who's making a call to 911 on somebody else that bias can come into play on who get, who's making that call what information that they're relaying um, it comes into play at the call taker and dispatch level as well and in, in terms of what we're assessing as dangerous uh, what we're assessing is as criminal um, and then of course if police officers are dispatched um, race also comes into play in terms of how they define the situation and what skill set they're drawing on to respond. Um, so certainly, we know that in communities of color, um, you know, there's going to be the tendency that we see, the bias that we see, is defining things as more dangerous and more criminal, um, and that's going to then impact what skill set an officer is going to pull out to respond. So they may have good um, crisis intervention training, um, but do they define this as a situation where that's what I'm going to use?
0: And we're definitely going to be spending extra time on crisis intervention training uh, with both you and the senator. And, and, Senator, I would love to bring you in. Before I do, I just want to say to people who are just joining us right now, first of all, thank you for your patience. We know that uh, logging in tonight has been uh, a little bit of a challenge. So uh, welcome. Uh, you haven't missed much. We're, we're really just uh, getting started right now. So, Senator Dingra, um, research, in fact, Amy's research, shows that even though most people experiencing a mental health crisis are not involved in criminal behavior, Having a police response increases the likelihood of arrest and involvement with the legal system. Can you talk about how you've seen this play out on the legal side?
4: Absolutely. Um, You know, having a behavioral health crisis is not illegal. However, the only option that currently we have if you want help is to call 911. Um, That crisis is a cry for help. However, our response is through law enforcement and I actually have an example to give you from my time at the prosecutor's office. Um, there was a law enforcement agency that you know 911 called, and this goes right back to the dispatch um, question and uh, the race issue as well. And the information they received were was from individuals in their car saying that as they were traveling, there was a young black male who was pointing a gun in their direction, and. COPS GOT A COUPLE OF CALLS, 911 CALLS, TALKING ABOUT THIS YOUNG BLACK MALE WITH A um, GUN. AND SO THE COPS SHOWED UP um, TO THE SCENE. THEY SAW A YOUNG MAN AND THERE WAS ANOTHER FEMALE KIND OF FAR AWAY, NOT TOO CLOSE TO HIM. AND the, THE FEMALE OFFICER PULLED OUT HER GUN, GAVE A WARNING, AND FIRED A SHOT. LUCKILY, SHE MISSED. TURNS OUT IT WAS A GUN MADE OUT OF BLACK LEGOS. This was a developmentally disabled young adult, and um, who had a provider with him who was taking him for his daily walk, and he took this toy gun and was pointing it at cars, um, but it was it was made out of Lego blocks, and um, he was saved because the officer missed. This is something where it, it just shocks me even today. Um, you know there were. The office had written it up for charges to be filed, and um, we at the prosecutor's office did not file any charges um, for this for this young adult. But that's just one example of so many times that what people perceive as dangerous behavior is in fact not dangerous at all. And um, you know how do you sit there and piece it out as to what needs a criminal justice response versus what needs a behavior health response? And this is where training for dispatch really is important for them to be able to ask the right questions and provide the um, information to officers that respond to the scene. It's also critical for an officer in that scene to be able to fully comprehend what's going on, to take that step back and truly understand what they're perceiving. Perception is, is again, just, just so um, different based on where you're coming from and there is this perception i will say in law enforcement that their job is extremely dangerous but if you actually look at the statistics it is not as dangerous as the perception of how dangerous their job is and so if you go into a scene always assuming um the worst that's the reaction you're going to have and in all of this we cannot forget the fact that as americans we unfortunately have a lot of guns that are available and around. And so anytime you're responding to a crisis, that access to a weapon is something that is always uh, in the back of the individual's minds when they're responding. But I'm
0: sure we have lots of other follow-up questions and details on how to unpack this. We, we do. And boy, you, you, everything that you said, I was taking notes here and there were so many things that I did want to follow up on. Um, I, I will just uh, kind of uh, button it by saying we're very lucky to have a prosecutor like you in a position where you would not file charges in a situation like that. But we know that that's not always the case. Um, I want to talk about the historical context of this, if we can, because I think it's something that we sort of take for granted. but. I would love to dig into why and how we got to this point where police are having to respond to mental health crises. And, Amy, I know you've written a lot about this, um, and I also know that it is a very meaty topic, and this is something that could be talked about um, any number of different ways. But I'm wondering if you could just give us sort of a a thumbnail of of how we got here.
2: Sure. So, I mean— A lot of it goes back to deinstitutionalization as we move people out of state psychiatric facilities, which was a good thing, we needed to do that. Um, But unfortunately we didn't develop a comprehensive community mental health system that provided people with the supports and services that they needed. And I know in, in most states in recent decades, we've seen further cuts to mental health budgets. Um, We also, when we define commitment criteria, uh, we often define it based on dangerousness. And in most states, police have that role in emergency apprehension of people who need to have an emergency involuntary assessment. Um, So we started to define things as a police role and attached to danger. um, And as mental health budgets kept shrinking, um, we've been better able to leverage Extend on the side of the criminal justice system to to fill in the gaps. Um, And so, you know, we don't have a right to healthcare in the community unless we're institutionalized. Um, But if we have a situation that ends up being handled by police because they're the only available responders and it doesn't go well, we can sue police departments. And we've had some success pushing that way, looking at civil rights violations. Um, so, again, we've expanded on that side, and police really, you know, we've defined them having a role, and then that's the place where we've been able to to leverage resources to try to fill in gaps. Unfortunately, that means that we've further defined mental health and behavioral health crisis as a criminal justice problem when it really needs to be shifted back to the healthcare system.
4: I'll say, you know, one of the fundamental points is that when people need help, the only guarantee they have that someone will show up is law enforcement. They can call the designated crisis responders, and many times they'll say we'll be there in four hours or we'll be there in 24 hours. But the only entity that has a responsibility to respond is law enforcement. And when you put that level of responsibility there, then everything that happens goes through law enforcement because they're the only ones who are told they have to show up. <laughs>
0: This is a perfect opportunity for us to go ahead and talk about some of the alternative approaches, because that is certainly why uh, we have a packed house tonight. There are many models, but I would like to focus on three basic ones, and we can discuss a few hybrids as well. The first model uh, is training police to deal with mental health crises. This is the the CIT or SIT model, um, and I I know certainly, Senator and Amy, I know you're both very familiar with this, uh, dispatching police and mental health professionals to respond to mental health crises together in a police vehicle. This is called the co-responder model, if I'm not mistaken. And then the third model is the mobile crisis and medic response with no first response by police in a non-police vehicle. And this is the model used by CAHOOTS. And uh, Tim, we're, we're gonna, I'll just let you know, we're going to talk about the first two models first, and then we're going to take uh, ample amounts of time to, to really unpack uh, CAHOOTS. So I hope you'll just ask, I'll ask for your patience here while we uh, go through the first two. Um, so in terms of the first model, the SIT model, giving specialized training to police officers to respond to a mental health crisis. Um, Senator Digger, I know you're very, very familiar with this. You've taught this. And and this, again, is one of those big, meaty questions. It varies, of course. But what does the training entail? How many hours? What What are some of the, 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 the top notes that you can tell us about this?
4: Absolutely. And, you know, when we're talking about crisis intervention training, you have different kinds, right? We actually mandate and require an eight-hour bring basic law enforcement academy which really 8 hours on behavior health it's 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 not sufficient at all then we have a 40 hour crisis intervention training and um you know over a decade ago that was first made voluntary in, in King County and so officers could uh, could just take it if they were interested in the 40 hour training and over the years uh, a lot of agencies have made that mandatory so uh, the eight hour is very basic. It goes through diagnoses, things like that. The forty hour is a lot meatier because it is a five day um, program. So they go over diagnoses. They go over um, you know de-escalation techniques. You know, uh, I come in and I used to talk about the sequential intercept model, options that individuals have. You know, the understanding. Of you know, how to how to slow down and assess things differently, because the entire time they're trained to go and take control of a situation. And literally they have to unlearn that and say, take a step back and and, and calm things down. And you know, everyone shouldn't be shouting orders. So there's a whole training component to that. What is very key to this, uh, which I love is they also have the In Our Own Voice program. And shout out to all the NAMI people here. Um, but they have individuals with lived experience who come in and talk about what they went through um, and their encounters with law enforcement, how they were feeling, whether they were manic, and how they perceived uh, their encounter with law enforcement. And then these individuals will sit down and have lunch with the officers over the lunch hour. So it, it really is about not just seeing individuals as the other but really understanding their experience as well and then the last day is um, is where they actually go in and are, are able to put their training into action so they have actors from behavioral health agencies that come in and do scenarios for officers and then the officers come in and they're supposed to put into effect what they have learned the first four days of their training and you know I've, I've Audited it multiple times just to kind of see how it's changed over the years. And the last day is really fascinating to me because there are officers who kind of revert back to their basic training, and then there are others who are able to switch gears and really put into effect what they have learned. And, you know, I used to do this once a month, and I knew the week after that training, I would get calls from officers. Uh, A majority of them would kind of go through their um, cases and say, hey, I am now identifying all these individuals that really uh, belong in a therapeutic alternative, and that's the unit I used to run, the therapeutic alternative unit, and not through the standard criminal justice system and, you know, can I staff cases with you? And then I would have officers who would describe in detail how they were able to put these de-escalation techniques to use out in the field right away so um it it is a more intensive uh program and one that i have really seen officers that that really embrace it change the manner in which they show up in their job And, and stories upon stories to tell you um on this but that, in essence, is is what the 40-hour crisis intervention
0: training is. So you, you talk about things like de-escalation, uh, humanizing uh, people, and then, of course, uh, implementation. Um, uh, I actually, once again, am scribbling notes and thinking about all the things that I would love to ask you about, uh, the, the, the kinds of experiences that you've talked to some of these officers about, and if you feel that there is a longer uh, sort of ramification in terms of the training if they carry it with them, but uh, this does get us to our very first que- question, which is, um, we we know that I-940 mandated this uh, minimum of eight hours of SIT training, uh, and it's supposed to be in compliance by June 30th of this year. Do we know where we are in terms of compliance right now?
4: So the eight hours was made a part of Basic Law Enforcement um, Academy years ago, but that was for the new officers coming in. And so there was this requirement that those that hadn't had it as part of it, they had to go ahead and, and take that so I don't have the numbers um, with me, but um, the eight hour, again, as I've mentioned, and I know there are people who are talking about it, even even the 40 hours isn't enough. Um, that, the, the eight hours, you know, the officers are getting that. Um, but again, we are asking law enforcement to be behavioral health professionals. And that is frankly not a role that I would like for them to play. Because as long as we continue to give them the responsibility to respond to a behavioral health crisis, you're going to continue to criminalize behavioral health. And as we know, having a behavioral crisis is not illegal. And if it's not illegal, law enforcement should not be responding unless there is truly a danger to others or if there's a weapon involved. And I think this is where talking about the other models is really important, uh, but then it again goes back to really being able to understand that actual danger versus the perception of
0: danger. Amy, I want to bring you in here very briefly because I know that you uh, have, I believe you both spoken at conferences about this very thing and certainly you've written uh, about the relative effectiveness of SIT. What would you like to add to what the Senator has just said?
2: Well, certainly, I mean, what we know about CIT training is that it does, it improves Officer level outcomes in terms of knowledge, attitude, self-efficacy, their endorsement of de-escalation skills. We also have some data that suggests that it increases their, um, the steps that they'll take to link people to services. So these are outcomes that you know initially are are, are good. If police are the only responders, um, you know, we need to make sure that they're prepared to do that. One of the things that we found too in the research is that actually you get even the best outcomes when you have officers that want to be CIT officers. And those are the ones that go through the training and then are dispatched to the calls. the, THE OTHER THING IS THAT REALLY the, THE FULL CIT MODEL HAS MORE THAN THE TRAINING. Um, REALLY KEY PIECES OF IT ARE THE PARTNERSHIPS BETWEEN LAW ENFORCEMENT AND BEHAVIORAL HEALTH AND ADVOCACY, PEOPLE WITH LIVED EXPERIENCE IN THE COMMUNITY TO REALLY COME TOGETHER TO LOOK AT WHERE ARE THE, the GAPS IN THE CRISIS RESPONSE SYSTEM. Um, SO IT CREATES A GOOD FOUNDATION TO START LOOKING AT, YOU KNOW, DO WE, LET'S LOOK AT DO WE NEED A CRISIS TRIAGE CENTER? DO WE NEED TO DEVELOP A NON-LAW ENFORCEMENT ALTERNATIVE. Um, SO IT COULD BE A GOOD FOUNDATION IF YOU HAVE THOSE RELATIONSHIPS IN PLACE ACROSS THE DIFFERENT SYSTEMS IN THE COMMUNITY. Um, BUT, YOU KNOW, the, THE ONE THING IS THAT MANY TIMES, THOUGH, IT'S REALLY IMPLEMENTED AS PRIMARILY TRAINING. AND WHILE WE WILL ALWAYS HAVE TO HAVE OFFICERS THAT HAVE THE ABILITY TO RESPOND EFFECTIVELY BECAUSE THERE ARE ON OCCASION THOSE CASES WHERE THERE IS A DANGER COMPONENT, or there's a situation that's not pre-identified as mental health related that police get called to, they have to be able to respond and pull in the right resources. So I think it's an important piece and we have good evidence that it can have an impact just by itself, particularly if we're only focusing on the training piece, it can't solve a problem that really belongs to a different system.
0: Let's talk about the second model then, which is dispatching police and mental health professionals together to respond to mental health crises in a police vehicle. This is uh, known as the co-responder model. Uh, Amy, can you just talk us briefly uh, through how this works logistically? Who does what? In what order? What's what's kind of the protocol with this model?
2: Well, there's some variation in how the model is implemented. So there's not one size fits all, but typically you'll have the clinician that rides with the officer. Um, if they may be dispatched to a hot call, so as the first response team, they may be dispatched at the request of an, a first responding officer that recognizes that this would be a good call, or they do follow up, or they do some combination of of those three. But when they arrive on the scene, it would be the officer that would be first ensuring that the scene is safe and secure before the clinician would come in and, and, and talk with people. Um, and you know, we do we have some evidence that that these types of teams can reduce unnecessarily emergency department transports and can provide some linkages to services that you know you know over time people actually are utilizing more services following that call um there's been some qualitative work i believe done in australia and canada and they asked people with lived experience of mental illness and their family members and you know they indicated they preferred to have a clinician with the officer over just the officer on his or herself. However, they also said what we really prefer is not to have the officer there.
0: Well, so, and I'm wondering actually, Senator, before we move on to the third model, if you have anything that you would like to add uh, to that in terms of the pros and cons of this model.
4: You know, um, as, as Amy said, there are lots of different models and I think we're constantly learning. I remember about 20 years ago, you know, there was a conversation on should the behavioral health professionals be employed by law enforcement? Um, should there be just contracted through it, right? And all of it comes, and then actually there was a very interesting model and I can't remember which state had it. They actually had a psychiatrist that was in charge of the CIT and law enforcement worked for him. Um, but you know, a lot of this comes down to, to trust, uh, respect for each other and their professional role and the ability and willingness to work together and understand what each can bring. And so um, I think there has to be a lot of local preference and um, personalities that come into play. But, you know, it's, it's been a couple of decades of people kind of experimenting with what these models look like, whether it's embedded, contracted, or uh, or part of law enforcement. And, and, and I think it really truly does come down to the local communities and what ends up working best.
2: One thing, um, though, when we see th- this type of model is make if we have law enforcement there with a co-responder team, you're still required to have law enforcement there, basically. And, um, you know, so that there's many communities that really are saying we want law enforcement out of the picture as much as possible. And, you know, you could have the best trained law enforcement officer that's really good at responding. They're, they're coming, still coming in with all that equipment. Um, and that can be really traumatizing and stressful for the person in crisis. I and mean, we all get nervous if we're driving down the road and a police officer is driving behind us. Um, you know, and I know I can pay a ticket if I get it. I'm not worried about getting killed per se, but it makes me nervous. If I was already very agitated and scared and feeling out of control because I'm in the mental health crisis, having police show up can really increase that stress level quite a bit. So if we can avoid it, um, you know, that really seems to be more ideal. And also having police there and the police car there continues to define this as a criminal justice
1: issue.
0: Well, thank you uh, for all of that, because it's the perfect segue into what we're going to talk about next, which is the non-police-first model. We're going to bring uh, Tim in right now. Uh, and so the CAHOOTS model is the unarmed mobile crisis and medic-first response instead of police or fire in a non-police vehicle. Um Tim, I would love for you, there's so much to, I've I've listened to many interviews with you at this point, and I know that there's a lot mm-hmm. to talk about with CAHOOTS. Uh, this is a program that has been quite successful in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, we'll get into depth as we go, but can you just give us a quick overview of how it works, how it's meant to work?
3: Yeah, the 30,000-foot view of CAHOOTS. Please. Yeah, um, I think the, the highlights are, um, first and foremost, that we are not employees of the city. Um, we are uh, one component of Wiper Clinic, which is a federally qualified health center that contracts with the cities of Eugene and Springfield to provide this service. Uh, our, our staff teams for response are always going to be an EMT and a crisis worker. Um, EMTs need to be a basic or higher, and uh, we're looking for a mental health associate equivalent um, for credentials for our, our staff on the crisis side. Um, compared to that, 40 hours of, of coursework that you'll go through as an officer in the CIT. OUR STAFF GO THROUGH 30 HOURS IN THE CLASSROOM AND THEN 500 HOURS OF FIELD TRAINING BEFORE THEY'RE ABLE TO WORK AS PART OF THAT TWO-PERSON RESPONSE TEAM. ALL OF OUR CALLS FOR SERVICE ARE uh, RECEIVED, TRIAGE AND DISPATCHED BY THE PUBLIC SAFETY SYSTEM uh, HERE. AND SO THAT MEANS THAT YOU, know, you CAN CALL 911 OR YOU CALL THE NON-EMERGENCY LINE. Uh, BUT if, IF THE CALL TAKERS AND THE DISPATCHERS DETERMINE THAT CAHOOTS IS THE MOST APPROPRIATE RESPONSE, THEY'RE ABLE TO GET US SENT TO THOSE CALLS. IT ALSO REALLY ALLOWS US TO uh, HAVE A LOT OF INTERACTION WITH LAW ENFORCEMENT uh, KIND OF AT THAT FINAL uh, KIND OF POINT BEFORE POLICE MAKE CONTACT WITH SOMEBODY IN CRISIS BY BEING ABLE TO HEAR THOSE CALLS COME THROUGH AND, um, YOU KNOW, REALLY SAY, HEY, THIS IS MORE APPROPRIATE FOR US TO GO IN AND, and WE CAN HANDLE INSTEAD. Um, can very I just actually I, I, just to, sure. to hop
0: in very quickly? Can you make that delineation for us again uh, between somebody calling nine one one and calling for emergency services? Um, mm-hmm. Is that something that somebody would call nine one one and that it would be diverted to emergency services, or are there two separate numbers to call in Eugene?
3: So there are two separate numbers that you can call in Eugene. There's the nine one one line that you know everyone knows to call. Um, And then there's the non-emergency number. Um, CAHOOTS, because we're a non-emergency response. We don't go lights and sirens or code three to our calls. We want folks to call the non-emergency line. But we also recognize that for some, there may be a perception that their experience is so emergent that 911 feels like the only appropriate number to call. And so, you know, because of that, that experience for somebody in crisis, we are also accessible by calling 911. Generally speaking, CAHOOTS teams are going to be responding to calls for service for any number of crises that are really related to mental health, substance use and abuse, poverty and homelessness. Um, And only about 60% of our population is unhoused. Uh, And finally, I know that we've got some more questions to dive into, but to really kind of give, uh, you know, perspective around the scope of our impact, just within the city of Eugene in 2019, Cahoots teams responded to 18,000 calls for service. We facilitated 15,000 of those calls without other public safety apparatus. So without police, without fire, without EMS. 13,000 of those calls would have required one of those systems to respond in our place. And through all of that work, we only had to call for police cover 311 times.
0: That- is an extraordinary number, and this is something that I had a discussion with uh, Seattle uh, Fire Chief uh, Harold Scoggins about this very dynamic, and he he wanted to know uh, not only about those sorts of numbers, and I will also mention uh, and acknowledge uh, Redmond Police Chief Darrell Lowell, who's asking similar questions, um, and I think what they would really like to know is who's making the decisions along the way. In other words, you have the individual actor who is calling up and saying, I see somebody who is in, in, in distress, or I am self, am in distress. It, let's say they call the wrong number. Let's say they call 911 when what's really warranted is cahoots, or they call the cahoots number and what's really warranted is, is 911. How do those two elements communicate and how, how does Eugene ultimately make sure that the right people are responding to the right situation?
3: Mm-hmm. So I think first we need to recognize that the non-emergency number that we tell people to call is the same non-emergency number that you call for police, for fire, for EMS. And so you call that Non-emergency number, and you're working your way through the phone tree: one for police, two for fire and EMS, three for cahoots. Uh, and so those calls are being answered by a 911 call taker and a non-emergency call taker. Um, every call that comes through that system is being triaged to really and assessed to really determine what the appropriate response is. Really, kind of regardless of what you know an individual reports. So if somebody calls in and says, "I need to get Bill Clinton out of my basement." That chances are that's not going to go to the fire department because it's unlikely that bill clinton is, is in your basement and refusing to get out right and so then that's a situation where it's going to start to be triaged to see really you know how, how when does this fit into the rest of the work that cahoots has how is the relative urgency of this compared to you know the high high acuity suicidal ideation or that person who's outside um, experiencing a housing crisis and it's the pacific northwest in november so it's you know rain raining and the winds blowing sideways
0: so when the respondents show up, when the CAHOOTS respondents show up, what do you do if a situation escalates?
3: One of the things that we do, regardless of, of the specifics of the situation, to prevent escalation from occurring It's FIRST REALLY RECOGNIZING HOW THE ENVIRONMENT WHERE a CRISIS IS OCCURRING CAN INFORM ESCALATION AND CAN INFORM uh, THAT POTENTIAL FOR DANGER. Um, SO WE'RE REALLY LOOKING AT IS THIS A SAFE PLACE TO HAVE THIS INTERACTION? DOES THIS PERSON FEEL SAFE WHERE WE ARE? IF WE'RE OUT IN PUBLIC, IS THERE A BIG CROWD AROUND? SHOULD WE GO SIT IN THE BACK OF THE VAN? IS IT A CROWDED APARTMENT COMPLEX WHERE EVERYBODY'S GOING TO BE WATCHING US, RIGHT? SO THERE'S A LOT THAT WE DO IN PREVENTION. Um, THAT EVEN EXTENDS TO OUR UNIFORMS. WE TRY TO LOOK AS FAR FROM POLICE AS WE CAN. Um, BUT When and that we we accomplish that by wearing a t-shirt, a hoodie, some jeans. Um, But when we're in the interaction with somebody and things are starting to escalate, um, our first approach is going to be to utilize verbal de-escalation skills and non-verbal de-escalation skills. So our responders who are real tall guys, they're going to, we teach them to slouch down a little bit, kind of shift their posture, right, you know, really... RECOGNIZE HOW OUR PRESENCE IN THE SPACE INFORMS THINGS um, FROM THERE YOU KNOW it's, IT'S REALLY ABOUT YOU KNOW VERBAL DEESCALATION AND ULTIMATELY IF WE GET TO A PLACE WHERE um, OUR WORDS AND OUR PRESENCE IN THAT SPACE AREN'T SUFFICIENT TO MAINTAIN THE SAFETY OF EVERYBODY INVOLVED THEN WE DO CALL FOR POLICE COVER YOU KNOW AGAIN AS I MENTIONED THOSE ARE RARE um, 311 OUT OF TIMES OUT OF 18,000 CALLS FOR SERVICE IF WE'RE CALLING FOR THAT POLICE SUPPORT IT'S BECAUSE we can't maintain the safety of that individual either due to level of intoxication uh, or because of the nature of the crisis has really prevented us from getting that contract for safety. When law enforcement shows up, CAHOOTS doesn't disengage. We don't walk away and say, all right, this is you know, this is for the cops now. We sit down the three parties, the officer, CAHOOTS, the individual in crisis and really explain this is where we're at. We really don't want to have you go to the hospital in the back of a police car, but where things are right now in this interaction Cahoots can't safely be the resource to transport you there, you know. So we really tried to provide those opportunities, and in that worst to to you know vo- keep it voluntary and and keep it a cahoots interaction and, and tell that officer to disengage. Worst case scenario where we are you know ending up with an officer transporting that individual to the hospital, cahoots still follows and we still facilitate the same transfer of care that we would have done if we had brought that person in individually. You know, we still have an obligation to advocacy and and really. Um, reinforcing, uh, you know, what the needs are for that individual that that may be missed by that officer who's only shown up after things have really kind of blown up out of control.
0: You mentioned something really interesting when we spoke in advance of this, and you said that everybody knows where everybody is in the CAHOOTS model. So that, that suggests two things to me, uh, that, that you have uh, good integration with mm-hmm. the Eugene, uh, Oregon Police Department, and it also suggests that uh, everybody is looking out for one another. Do, do you have that sense? Do you have that sense of support from the police the, the police department?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's really important to recognize we are unarmed civilian first responders that are going out in these situations. We're not carrying pepper spray. We're not carrying a taser, right? And, and um, because we are still maintaining that role as behavioral health first responders, uh, you know, our partners in public safety really recognize kind of that potential risk. Um, and when we call for police cover on those rare situations, it almost feels like we've got it before we've even gotten our thumb off the mic. You know, there there is this real, I think, recognition one of, of the work we're taking off their plate, um, and and two that if we're calling for their support, it's because we really need it. We've tried everything else, and this is the last resort. But I mean,
0: 18,000 out of 311 is just an extraordinary uh, statistic. Um, And I want to talk about next funding and cost, specifically with CAHOOTS for a moment. And I'll just billboard the fact that uh, Oregon Senator Ron Wyden has a funding proposal in the American Rescue Plan to expand CAHOOTS nationally. But first, just if you could, uh, Tim, give us a rundown of the cost of the CAHOOTS program. and, And really, how does it compare to the cost of standard policing.
3: Yeah, um, the total cost of operations for our program comes out to two point three million dollars a year. Um, specifically within the city of Eugene, you know, where again we have those really fantastic stats to look at. Um, the city of Eugene is is contributing about nine hundred thousand dollars to the cost of our operations. Um, for that nine hundred thousand dollars that they're receiving if you just look at things on um, uh, officer replacing cahoots for every single response we're saving them one and a half million dollars that's a conservative estimate um, but there's more than just the time that officers would have otherwise spent on these scenes um, what's harder to quantify and and where we need support in, in really identifying this cost savings is looking at the impact on the criminal legal system how many fewer court YOU KNOW HOW MANY FEWER COURT DATES ARE THERE RIGHT HOW MANY BENCH WARRANTS ARE THERE REDUCED HOW MANY FEWER NIGHTS IN JAIL ARE FOLKS SPENDING THAT'S THAT'S WHERE I THINK THAT THERE'S A a, a BIGGER VALUE TO THIS THAN JUST THAT EQUIVALENT COST OF HAVING OFFICERS YOU KNOW LABOR uh, GO TOWARDS THAT ADDITIONALLY um, WE'RE NOT JUST IMPACTING the police system we're also making a big impact in the hospitals in ems and when you include cost savings for er diversions and reduced ambulance rides as well as that potential cost savings to the police department we see for our program that costs around 2.2 2.3 million dollars that we're saving almost 16 million dollars to our community on a yearly basis
0: and I don't think that I can hyperbolize, and Cat you know, mentioned this, I'm going to mention it again, you're saving lives. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think that there's any question about
3: that. You can't put a price on that.
0: Right. Um, so I, I want to just briefly talk about some other non-police first response models with you because you have been insanely popular, man. Like, everybody has been setting <laughs> you up for, uh, for information on how to start programs in their community. Um, I, I know you've been consulting. Uh, I know we have some here in the state. I wonder if you could just run down a few that you have worked with that you think are noteworthy that, that, that our audience should know about?
3: Yeah, um, the three communities that really come to mind that are implementing programs that are closest to the CAHOOTS model are, um, you know, and this is going to be close to home for you all, uh, Olympia Washington's Crisis Response Unit um, and the Familiar Faces program alongside that. Um, we had... Tremendous opportunity to come up to Olympia and to host some visitors down here in Eugene uh, to really work on developing their program. Um, We also had a big role to play in Portland Street Responses rollout and um, facilitated a lot of the training and initial program design for Denver's STAR program as well. Um, We're also, you know, we're in talks with a lot of different cities uh, across the country, I'd say even throughout North America as well, right now. But yeah, Denver, Olympia, and Portland are the three communities that have really been earnestly pursuing the CAHOOTS model with some variations to meet their unique community needs.
0: Well it's just tremendous and uh, I want to talk uh, about some hybrid models here very briefly uh, with both Amy and the senator Uh, and as we do I would like to acknowledge the Health One program here in Seattle uh, as we have Fire Chief Scoggins and John Ehrenfeld with us. Uh, This program dispatches firefighters uh, with social workers to non-emergency calls about substance abuse and mental health problems. Amy I'll start with you first because I, I read quite a bit of what you had to say about this, uh, the the fire department model in the 2019 VERA report. What are your thoughts generally on these sorts of programs?
2: Uh, I I think, I mean, it's another approach to trying to get non-law enforcement response out to meet the needs of people. And certainly there's also some examples that um, from other countries in Sweden, they have an ambulance team that goes out. Um, I, in the Netherlands, they also have, it's basically a, a, a psych ambulance, but it's uh, EMTs that go out with psychiatric nurses. Um, and I, I think there's certainly some benefit in really getting, getting a more appropriate response out to people to meet their needs. Um, and I think what, what the specific team will look like might vary a little bit depending on the context in the community and, and what, what the pressing issues are.
0: I will just mention to uh, the audience here, if you are aware of programs uh, either in our state or or around the country or even across the planet, uh, do let us know. We would love to to, to have that in our chat here. Um, Senator Dingra, I know you have many thoughts on this.
4: Yes, always. Um, (laughs) And I'll just say there are other programs. And this session, we put in actually a lot of funding to what we were calling the Safe Station Program, but it's much wider than that. It's exactly that is where our... um, firefighters have the ability to go out there and uh, provide services to individuals experiencing behavioral health and mental health um, issues, the ability to follow up and get them uh, access to treatment, same dollars that um, our EMTs and other individuals can actually apply for to do exactly that, is do that outreach and connection to services for those individuals experiencing a behavioral health crisis. And again, all of this you know, recognizes that fundamental concept that I started off by saying that it is not illegal to have a behavioral health crisis. And so you have to have a lot of different options available for people to access treatment. And I do want to address some of the comments that are being made. You know, years ago, I used to actually also do a training for NAMI Eastside called what happens when you call 911 on your loved one and talk about what people should expect, how to like make sure you're providing the information so it can be a safe encounter. And one of the comments that Jerry had put in chat is that years ago, there were so many family members that were told that the only way to get your loved one into treatment is to call 911, let them know that they were dangerous so that they could be civilly committed or go through a therapeutic alternative program to the criminal justice system because there weren't that many options there. And I'll just say, um, you know, I've only been in politics for four years, but those four years, my emphasis has been in behavioral health and making sure that we do early intervention and that we provide access to crisis services outside of law enforcement. And so, you know, we are seeing a lot of these hybrid models all over the state. I've heard from Pierce County, there's a great program in Kitsap County, Seattle has it. Um, I know the city of Redmond is here where I live and they have hired a, a person who, who works with housing. Uh, and it really is to address services to the population that we're all talking about. <laughs>
0: You know, on that note, uh, I think th- we, we had so many questions about uh, transitioning, um, and I, I'm going to jump ahead here uh, just a little bit because I really do want to circle back and talk about funding. But since you just mentioned that, Senator, um, we had somebody, uh, you know, we Tim and, and others, and we're, we're having people in the chat bar listing off a number of programs that are working here in the state, as we mentioned Olympia, Kirkland, Seattle. Um, Jim asks, is there any work at the state level about integrating those into a single statewide program?
4: What an excellent question. I thought so too. (laughs) Um, Just this year, we actually passed a bill that creates the 988 system. So 988 is a number that's been authorized by the federal government to be a behavior health crisis number. So uh, there are a lot of states across the country who are working on this. I will say this is another one of the issues where Washington state is kind of leading the pack. And that sets up an alternative to 911 so that if an individual is having behavioral health crisis that you can call 988, not 911. And what we'll be working on for the next year is that coordination between 988 and uh, 911, 988 and our EMTs to really make sure that the the response is appropriate. We do not have a statewide behavioral health system. Right now, when you take a look at it, you have cities that are doing incredible stuff. You have counties that are doing it but there is no statewide system. And so as part of this 988 bill that hopefully the governor will sign very, very soon, uh, we are doing a landscape analysis to really understand what are the resources that exist all over our state. So we have an understanding of this. And the funding for all of these programs is very varied. Counties that have the mid, that's the mental uh, uh, illness, drug dependency tax, the one tenth of 1% sales tax, Many of these programs are funded through there. Some of them are eligible for Medicaid funding. There is a combination of local and state dollars. And so I think this landscape analysis that is being conducted right now will be very helpful for the state of Washington to clearly understand what where, where are all these programs? Who's funding them? And you know how can we make sure we're creating a statewide a behavioral health system. And, and I'm very excited to be doing this work with so many of you on this call in the next
0: few years. I'm glad you brought up the 988 system because we did have some, uh, listener and viewer calls about that. And then that circles us right back to funding. And Tim, I will ask you, uh, you know, Oregon Senator Ron Wyden has a provision in the, uh, ARP, the, the, that is the rescue plan that would fund cahoots for other, uh, cahoots like programs rather nationally. Uh, what can you tell us about this and, and where, where it sits right now?
3: Yeah. Um, this, THIS BILL WOULD UTILIZE MEDICAID FUNDS TO uh, PROVIDE 85% MATCHING GRANTS FOR THE FIRST THREE YEARS OF MOBILE CRISIS PROGRAMS, REALLY HELPING THEM GET THROUGH THAT PILOT PHASE, uh, START TO DEMONSTRATE THOSE REAL COST SAVINGS AND WORK WITH COMMUNITIES TO, uh, YOU KNOW, BRING IN MORE SUSTAINABLE LONG-TERM FUNDING. Uh, WHERE THINGS ARE AT RIGHT NOW IS THAT, um, YOU KNOW, WE DID GET WHAT uh, SENATOR WYDEN HAS CALLED A DOWN PAYMENT ON THAT BILL WITH THE PASSAGE OF ITS FUNDING THROUGH THE ARP. Um, right now we are in that real fun bureaucratic place of trying to figure out what does this look like you know when we actually get out and apply it um you know we we have some some hurdles ahead of us um but one of the things that we're really looking at is as we um, formalize this as this becomes uh, you know kind of part of communities that we really want to recognize that um every community is going to have really unique needs and with such we need to make sure that there are uh, broad definitions of uh, you know appropriate staffing models that can be applied Um, what camas needs is going to be different than what spokane or seattle or bellevue need right and so as such with this funding we need to make sure that we aren't being too restrictive uh, with who it is that can be a part of those responses and that we allow them time to really grow. Um, One of the things that we are worried about is um, if you mandate that a program is 24 seven right out of the gate. It can be really challenging to one figure out how to staff, you know, that resource overnight, but also really to build the community's awareness that that resource is there after hours. Um, CAHOOTS wasn't 24 seven until uh, we had been operating for over 25 years, you know, so with this bill, what we're really looking at is making sure that um, that funding can really be br- as broadly applied as, as communities need.
0: And you're talking about transitioning and implementation, and boy, do we get a lot of questions about that. And Amy, you've written a lot about this. So, uh, you know, th- in fact, I'll just read a question directly. Rebecca asks, what advice would you give to others who are looking to duplicate what CAHOOTS has done in their community? So Amy, in your mind, what are some of the first basic steps that a community can take to transition to a public non- police first type model uh, in, in this situation?
2: I think, you know, the first step is really bringing your system and your community stakeholders together to really look at, you know, what what resources you have, what types of call are you really thinking about that you want to provide this non-law enforcement response to. Um, gathering some data and looking at that um, and, and, and coming up with that plan that way, but really bringing in um, not just your mental health system and your law enforcement, but bringing in members of the community that are gonna be most impacted to find out what it is that they're looking for as well, um, what type of response is important to them, um, you know, how they, what that response should look like, how they wanna access it. Um, so again, a really a lot of it starts with bringing people together and, and really finding out what people uh, are needing.
0: You know, each of you has alluded to what the, certainly Senator has, and Amy, you have as well. Um, just sort of dovetailing on what you're saying, Amy, that communities of color often do not feel safe in this scenario. They do not feel safe dialing nine one one. And so, y- when you and I were speaking in preparation, Amy, you made the point that we absolutely need to ensure that these programs aren't just for middle class white communities, uh, but should actually prioritize communities that don't traditionally have a good relationship with the police. Uh, any thoughts on on how we might implement something like that. And Senator Dingra, hold that thought, because I would like to get your thoughts on this as well.
2: Um, Absolutely. I think, you know, you know, the big danger is that we have these alternatives to law enforcement with the caveat, unless it's dangerous. And there's so much bias in how we assess dangerous that we need to be really careful. I mean, we we do need to assess dangerousness and send police for support when it's necessary, but we need to be very careful Careful in how we're doing that. And I think an important piece is making sure that we have representatives from the communities that are most negatively impacted by policing at the table in planning what we're going to do. But also, you know, when we have a workforce issue too, we want to make sure that we're bringing in and we're hiring people to work in these programs that are familiar with the communities that we want to serve um so making a pathway for for entry into these jobs that are so desperately needed for people from the communities that we want to serve instead of having you know um somebody from way another part of of the area coming in and trying to provide services uh, i do think one of the things we have to look at those are workforce capacity um and, and kind of identifying what what these teams need to be made up of what types of roles and then really developing and supporting that workforce that we need to do this and making sure that they're paid reasonably so that we can get people that wanna stay in those positions as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> that, that seems to be a theme that is happening right now. It's uh, it's on everybody's mind. Uh, Senator Dinger, your thoughts?
4: Um, thank you on I'm, I'm the race question because I, I um, do wanna talk about about that specifically. So there are two components of it. One is right the distrust of law enforcement. And we have seen over and over again that, that simple encounters have turned to deadly. So there is a huge mistrust um, between communities of color and law enforcement. So that's one component, right? That prevents them from calling 911. Second is also stigma. We haven't talked about this. In Asian countries, Hispanic countries, um, they don't wanna talk about mental illness. They don't want to acknowledge it. And so many times when you talk about that early intervention component or even the willingness to call and ask for help, it's very complicated because we have to make sure we're making inroads. And this is where, again, I would give a shout out to all the agencies that have been trying to work um, in that arena and really making sure we're destigmatizing mental illness. And so those two things are are, are very important. And um, on the issue of law enforcement and trust, this is something that that's why we're really hoping that the 988 system and the implementation of that that we are involving communities of color right from the beginning so that we can start building that trust and letting them know that there is a different system, that a system that we're hoping will be more responsive uh, to the needs and really head on dealing with that implicit bias Um, and, and trying to really not dance around that issue, but be direct in the manner in which we deal with it. And I'll just add, this goes to the workforce issue that was mentioned because we know from medical delivery right when you go even for an appointment for physical health um, you're treated differently if your doctor looks like you versus not we know the racial disparities when black women seek medical treatment in the way they're treated versus our um, white counterparts you know that is the reality of physical health it is so much more when it comes to behavioral health and so making sure that we have individuals with lived experience, individuals who come from the communities they want to serve, so that that delivery of services is is actually impactful and real. And um, again, you know, this is work we continue to do and will continue to do, but the important thing is to say what these problems are in an honest way and make sure we're working towards real solutions. <laughs>
0: I had wanted at some point to get to uh, some of Amy's work on the stigma of mental illness. Uh, We simply don't have time this evening, but uh, I will provide uh, some reading uh, for people in the show notes uh, because I think it's very, very important. So look, from everything that we have read and learned and discussed tonight, the non-policing model seems to have many advocates, and it certainly seems to have more than its share of upsides. So I'll just ask each of you if you have a sense of where the resistance is coming from from. Tim, do, do you have a sense, I mean, in in your community of, of where of where resistance comes from? And in, in, I'll, I'll actually extend the question. The newer programs that you are consulting on in other cities, do you have a sense of where the resistance is coming from uh, there? Are there specific entities, individuals, elected officials?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thinking about our local community where we do see some detraction and, and that criticism is, is around those who... Um, Hold firm to the, myth, the the magnet myth that kind of, you know, right, if you build it, they will come. And this assumption that because Cahoots is here, that is why we have the highest incidence of homelessness per capita. Let's not look at, you know, the cost of housing, the loss of timber jobs, and how there hasn't been an economic boom in Oregon since that. Um, WE JUST FOCUS ON CAHOOTS AS THIS ENABLING THING. Um, OUTSIDE OF OUR LOCAL COMMUNITY WHERE THERE'S THAT PERCEPTION OF ENABLING BY THOSE FEW CRITICS THAT WE DO EXPERIENCE, um, THE BIGGEST RESISTANCE THAT WE'VE SEEN TO THIS MODEL IS GENERALLY COMING FROM POLICE UNIONS WHERE THERE'S A LOT OF CONCERN um, PRIMARILY OVER THE CONTRACTS. Uh, IF if A PROGRAM LIKE CAHOOTS IS COMING IN AND TAKING A SLICE OUT OF, YOU KNOW, THAT CALLS FOR SERVICE PIE FOR THAT PATROL DIVISION, that could potentially impact their contract if you cut too many calls. And this is something we ran into in the city of Portland. You know, It was really just this idea that there was too much risk to the overall call volume for uh, the staffing level that, that, that Portland Police Bureau had that they were worried they were going to be forced to lay folks off if they implemented this program.
0: Well, you know, it's it's no secret that we have a number of activists watching and listening right now. We are, of course, the Indivisible Town Hall series. Uh, many people are going to be looking to take action here to advocate on behalf of non-police first uh, type response uh, units in their communities. And I'll just ask each of you, uh, because we're actually in the process right now, the organizers and I are in the process of putting together a call to action around this. So if people are looking to push their local officials elected and otherwise to adopt one of these models. What do you think would be an effective approach and which officials should they focus on? Amy, do you have thoughts here?
2: I think, I mean, in terms of getting local communities to adopt these models, you know, going to city council, going to mayors, um, PUTTING COALITIONS TOGETHER TO REALLY SHOW THAT THIS IS WHAT THE COMMUNITY IS PUSHING FOR. Um, AS A RESEARCHER, I LIKE TO THINK IS BRINGING SOME RESEARCH DATA IS HELPFUL. Um, YOU KNOW, AND EVEN JUST THE DATA FROM Kahoot SHOWING THAT THEY'VE BEEN ABLE TO RESPOND TO SO MANY CALLS WITH AND ONLY NEEDING POLICE backup ON A SMALL NUMBER THAT THEY'VE SAFELY BEEN ABLE TO DO THAT. Um, So I think that's important as well. I think there's starting to be more data looking at 911 systems, being able to identify. There's a lot of calls that just don't need to have police involved, and we can shift that. So I think bringing some of that data as well is really important.
0: And then, Tim, I'll just ask you, because you have been consulting with so many different cities, uh, are you seeing pressure campaigns, and where are they directed?
3: Yeah, some of the pressure campaigns that we're seeing are directed at those exact you know bodies that Amy's talking about. Right. You know, the, the policymakers, um, those who hold that power within the city system. So mayors, city managers, counselors, commissioners, um, chiefs of police, um, those generally seem to be where um, there's a lot of uh, focus, you know, a lot of energy put into. Um, I would also highlight, for instance, uh, uh, public advocate Jimani Williams in New York City put out this just fantastic report on uh, his recommendations for crisis response within New York City. Uh, and so it's, it's really, you know, we, we put these people in these positions of power and it's our obligation as those constituents to hold them accountable, um, to say, hey, we see the good things that you're doing and here's what we still need to do.
0: Uh, Senator Dingra, as the, the lone elected official on our panel, I will put the, the perhaps tricky question to you. Where do you think we can best apply pressure?
4: Well, this is great because our current state budget actually put in all kinds of grant money for what we're calling the safe station program. So there are cities that are interested in starting um, some kind of um, alternative to law enforcement responding to these calls, there's grant money available. Please apply to Department of Commerce. Um, There should be uh, quite a bit of it this session and then reach out to me if those funds run dry. I don't think they will uh, before we get to the next uh, session and um, so please start that process right now and for all of you make sure you call your local electives and tell them to get money from the state on these grants to get that program running and while I know that not one thing can be the answer I really have very high hopes for 988 and it is going to, the planning is starting uh, it's going to be a few years And so please stay plugged in, pay attention to what's going on. But that is exactly where the plan is for Washington State is to have a statewide behavioral health crisis response system that has uh, mental health professionals or behavioral health professionals responding, coordinating with 911 if needed. But uh, really it's about living up to that principle that having a behavioral health crisis is not illegal. And so let's make sure the response is appropriate and effective.
0: So I think probably what we're going to do is trim out this last section and we're going to to kind of run this as a loop for people, for our Indivisibles, uh, so that they can review this on their own. Um, We would like Indivisibles to take this as a call to action to meet with your group based on what we've just heard tonight. Meet with your group. Talk about what would be best for your municipality in your county. Um, I will also mention that we have a survey from Indivisible Eastside's Racial Equity Group that invites you to continue the conversation next Thursday. Thursday evening, May the 13th. Kat is going to drop a link in the chat for that. Also, and this is thanks to Laura Van Tosh, we have a list of mental and behavioral health resources to share. So that will be in the chat as well. And then finally, uh, we want to let people know that, that we are, we're hosting an exclusive town hall with Senator Maria Cantwell, and this will be next Friday, May 14th at 12 noon. It was scheduled for this Friday, but we've had to move it to uh, the following Friday, the 14th. Kat will also be providing information on that. So with that, uh, we will turn to your questions. And as I mentioned, uh, uh, Senator, the first uh, three are for you. The first one has to do with Ricky's Law. Um, what in, and and uh, what is the status of funding Ricky's Law units to treat dangerous drug abusers involuntarily? Um, it's my understanding this is a 2016 law that would designate a crisis responder who is authorized to uh, conduct investigations um, potentially and, and really pretend, uh, like, uh, detain uh, individuals involuntarily. What's the status of this right now?
4: Oh, my goodness, I could have another whole hour to talk about critique <laughs> law. Um, so this is civil commitment for those individuals who are a danger to themselves or others or gravely disabled. And traditionally, we've done that for mental illness. And, this, and you know, originally, there was this, there was this bifurcation, like either you were mentally ill or you had drug dependency. And, of course, we know that's not true. And so over the years, um, and sorry for the history lesson, but that is, you had to like pick one. Uh, and over the years, we've come to the understanding that we have co-occurring disorders, that those exi- co- you know, exist and people have both. And so uh, Ricky's law and, um, and our civil commitment, actually now we have behavioral health crisis, um, civil commitment, and that was this huge big bill that I did a few years ago that made them um, similar. So last year, actually all last interim during the COVID pandemic, um, I and representative Lauren Davis had monthly meetings hearing from uh, counties all across our state on how the law implementation was going. And as a part of that, because that is is being implemented right now, you can have civil commitment, but that's only to the hospital. You have to have a whole network and a frame of where people go after hospitalization. We don't want individuals with behavioral health disorders to be in our hospitals for long-term. And so what we have been working on actually and uh, have created in the last few years are these specific facilities called Secure Withdrawal Management Facilities. Uh, detox facilities is a name that they used to be known as, but there's so much more than that. We've had two up and running for the last few years. And so we wanna make sure that people get the help they need, they go into either a SWIMS facility or an emergency room or be civilly committed, but we want them to use the most appropriate facility uh, to have their needs met. What we found out through these SWIMS facilities is when you provide these facilities that provide treatment uh, that people end up staying and they end up uh, going into recovery. So um, I had another build a session that actually took ALL OUR MEETINGS FROM LAST YEAR AND REALLY uh, FOUND OUT WHERE THE holes WERE AND HOW TO BUILD A KIND OF PLUGGED uh, IMPLEMENTATION OF WIKI'S LAW. AND AGAIN, VERY HOPEFUL THE governor's IS GOING TO BE signing THAT INTO LAW THIS YEAR. BUT THAT REALLY HELPS IMPROVE THE PROGRAM um, FOR CIVIL COMMITMENT AS WELL AS MAKING SURE THAT THERE ARE CARE COORDINATORS AND INDIVIDUALS WHO GET TREATMENT AFTER THAT. BUT um, THIS GOES BACK AGAIN TO decriminalizing drugs, right? If you don't want, if everyone wants treatment for substance use disorder, you don't have to get that treatment through the criminal justice system. So the other step-down option would be to do it through civil, civil commitment, uh, if we're not going to be doing more early intervention.
0: I I so want to have a discussion about the Blake ruling with you, (laughs) but we're not going to because we just don't have time for that. Okay, so Amy, a question for you. Mary asks, you say, quote, neighborhoods of color, but there are a wide variety of responses to black versus brown and others, correct?
2: Certainly. And, you know, really in tailoring an alternative response is really working with each local community and kind of tailoring the particular model to what is useful there. Uh, But yes, we do, we do know that um, particularly with law enforcement responses, they're they're, policing is different in different communities. um, And oftentimes in negative ways that impact communities of color, absolutely.
0: So, uh, we had another question kind of along those uh, same lines here. But So, uh, Kirsten asks, uh, and she says she's paraphrasing off of sh- uh, what she heard tonight What are the hours of CAHOOTS responders, and does that lead to gaps in coverage, such as recently in Portland? Tim, any thoughts on that?
3: Yeah. CAHOOTS um, responders are going to work 12 hour shifts. Uh, that allows us to do two things one, make sure that responders that are on duty are really, uh, you know, have an in-depth knowledge of what's going on in the community um, that evening. It also means that generally, if you're full-time, you work three days and you have four days off. Um, but our model is a 24 seven response for the communities of Eugene and Springfield. We actually have 60 service hours per day. So that means that we have two vans running 24 seven, just round the clock. And then when things get real busy for us in Eugene, we actually have a second van that comes on for an additional 12 hours a day.
0: Sally Fisher is one of the uh, wonderful, wonderful organizers. Hi, Sally. Uh, you, you and Heather have done such exemplary work tonight, and I, I want to thank you. Um, Sally asks, and, and Senator, this is for you, officers in certain jurisdictions, including Bellevue, routinely handcuff those who are at risk of suicide uh, in the back of their police vehicles. This seems extremely traumatizing. Is this mandated by police unions or in police policy manuals, and can the state intervene in some way to halt this practice?
4: Thank you. You know, this was something that I I was going to mention earlier when we were talking about um, law enforcement response. They do have a lot of protocols they have to follow, right? They have to make sure that they have policies. Their policies are developed keeping in mind that they are dealing with individuals who are breaking the law. Many times these officers don't have the discretion to change from that policy based on what they're saying. And so the handcuffing, bring them in the back of the car, um, things that they do, it's targeted with someone in mind who is breaking the law, someone who may have broken um, into, you know, committing a burglary, or someone who may um, be in, uh, involved in an assault. They don't make that distinction of someone who is having a behavioral health crisis, and and that's the point: is if they are always treating that person the same way because that's what the protocols say. Um, it's very challenging to provide a trauma-informed way of dealing with trauma, yeah. and that's why you specifically need a non-law enforcement response. And um, and you know, I'll just say frankly, many times for law enforcement officers, they, they do not have the expertise to try to figure out what is going on, whether someone is you know high on methamphetamine or is someone having a uh, a psychotic break, um, and so i do not i truly do not believe that we should be leaving it to a law enforcement offices to handle these calls it has to be done with professionals who understand um, this population who have expertise uh, in behavioral health crisis and are able to provide uh, a therapeutic uh, response you know we've done this in, in taking a look at trafficking survivors um, and juveniles who are being trafficked and making sure that the way they're handled is not like criminals, but um, as, as victims as they are. But that involves having law enforcement bring in someone who has that training where they can do a handoff. And so unless you are doing a warm handoff to someone with those expertise, I think it's very challenging to have that discretion. And, and it comes back to the more discretion you give law enforcement, our Department of Corrections. We're talking about liability here. And that's where a lot of this comes in. Why do we have uniform practices and protocols? Because of liability. We want to make sure that cities, counties, our agencies, law enforcement, uh, like when they get sued, they can say, oh, that's what a protocol said. That's what we have to do. And so I'll just say, when we're talking about criminal justice reform, we have to take a look at the manner in which we deal with liability in our state and uh, really take a look at making changes to
2: our liability laws but all of these go hand in hand
0: amy i see you lean in is there something you wanted to add to that
2: um just with the question about handcuffing there are a number of agencies now and i'm not sure about in washington state but other places that are pushing basically if an officer is responding to a mental health crisis call they handcuff the person immediately upon arrival um, before they determine even if the person's going to be taken into custody either for a hold or for an arrest. So we're seeing again agencies basically training on that as being safer because that way the person's under control and um, they're less likely to I, I guess have to use force. Um, so again, it, it just go to me it further um underlines why we really need alternative responses. Um, because I think that's a civil rights violation to simply handcuff somebody because it's a mental health crisis. Yeah. But it's happening in many agencies.
0: Um, We had a question from Cindy uh, for you, Tim. Uh, What is the educational degree or training needed for CAHOOTS or other mental health practitioners? Uh, We need to make this known to high school students and community colleges so this profession can be pursued by young people. What a great question.
3: Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. Man, great forward thinking too. Mm-hmm. Um, for, our, for our medics, uh, we require that you be at minimum an EMT basic and licensed and certified to operate in the state of Oregon. Um, our crisis workers generally are going to uh, qualify for credentialing as a qualified mental health associate in the state of Oregon, which is a equivalent of an undergraduate education and or experience. Uh, A lot of us come from non-traditional backgrounds, either in service delivery or education. For instance, I'm a BFA, um, but uh, worked in youth shelters and really liked doing street outreach. And that's where I got the skills to come in and be a crisis worker for the CAHOOTS program. Uh, What we really want to do is take that experience that you have, uh, you know, more so the better, even if it's lived experience, and then really um, look at that experience through that 500 hours of field training and and really kind of build on those two things, what we're offering to you and what you bring to us as a unique individual that really creates such a dynamic and uh, I would argue just wonderful, uh, you know, work environment and, and team of collaborators.
0: I mean, it, it, you, you make it feel very, very rewarding, uh, the, you know, the way that you describe it, uh, and uh, we certainly appreciate the work that you do. Um, this is for you, Amy. Uh, what is accountability, and this is from Simone, what is accountability for the expected behavior changes from these trainings look like? Models are great, but what happens when they break down? Who bears the burden and the consequences of the ruptures? Who's responsible for the remedies and reparations? Any thoughts, Sarah?
2: So... CERTAINLY, I MEAN, THINKING ABOUT SOME OF THE PROGRAMS, CIT TRAINING, THOSE TYPES OF THINGS, Looking, THE ACCOUNTABILITY REALLY HAS TO BE WITH THE COMMUNITY AND THAT RELATIONSHIP BETWEEN, for FOR CIT, THAT WOULD BE A POLICE AGENCY AND THE COMMUNITY. IN TERMS OF SOME OF THESE OTHER MODELS, I THINK IT'S REALLY MAKING SURE THAT THE community is aware and involved and engaged in following the progress of the model and that accountability has to be there. Um, and again, the accountability is also for the people who are the policymakers and decision makers and making sure that these programs are resourced adequately to, to do the things that they're being asked to do.
0: Tim, I have a question from Dina who asks about peer support. Um, And I assume that she means someone who has also gone through a mental health crisis or has been, say, a client of something like CAHOOTS. Um, Is this something that CAHOOTS does currently? Are there other uh, models around uh, the country that are incorporating uh, peer support?
3: Mm-hmm. um a lot of our responders on cahoots would probably self-identify as coming from a place of lived experience but that's not something that we are you know mandating as a requirement to come and work for us um it's also again i really want to reinforce that you know cahoots is one component of whitebird clinic and uh, whitebird clinic does offer a very robust set of peer support services including systems navigation case management uh, even you know outpatient substance abuse treatment uh, and so if, if there is situation where that peer support is something that's going to really be impactful for somebody then we are striving to find ways to get them connected to that as far as other peer program you know other programs utilizing peers i would again look to olympia with the familiar faces but also something that i didn't mention earlier that really is, IS NECESSARY FOR US TO RECOGNIZE IS THAT THROUGHOUT COMMUNITIES ACROSS OUR COUNTRY, THERE ARE FOLKS WHO ARE DOING THIS WORK WITHOUT RESOURCES, WITHOUT THE SUPPORT OF A TRADITIONAL SYSTEM. Uh, AND IN PARTICULAR, THE ANTI-POLICE TERROR PROJECT WITH the MENTAL HEALTH FIRST RESPONSE IN BOTH SACRAMENTO AND OAKLAND IS A REALLY GREAT EXAMPLE WHERE IT'S FOLKS FROM THE COMMUNITIES THAT ARE BEING AFFECTED BY over policing, WHO ARE EXPERIENCING MENTAL HEALTH AND ADDICTION, HOUSING ISSUES, WHO ARE THEN GOING OUT AND SAYING, HEY, I'VE BEEN THERE. And I've walked through this. We'll get through this. We'll, we'll get there together. You know. So it's there. There are a lot of really successful models out there. Again, I would also uh, mention uh, the Fountain House in New York City and their network of clubhouses throughout the country as another really fantastic place where we can look to uh, better inclusion of peers in these types of responses.
0: We uh, actually we had gotten to a, a question uh, from uh, Issaquah City Council member Lindsay Walsh about uh, and this was for you, um, as Senator, about if there is legislation underway for a program like this. But she has a follow up. Can you discuss the pros and cons of a CAHOOT style program implement, implemented at the city versus county versus regional versus state level? That's uh, that, that's that's quite a, a wide spectrum. But I wonder if you just have some some overarching thoughts about that.
4: I definitely do. Oh,
0: good,
4: okay. I, I think there has to be accountability at the statewide level because the buck has to stop somewhere. So um, I think you have to take a look at, at, at a level where you have someone who you can go to. Right now, we don't. At a statewide, if you said, who's in charge of behavioral health? I don't know who's in charge of behavioral health for the state because we don't have that one person. So we have to have that hierarchy where there's someone with, with whom the buck stops. And you have to have that coordination from that person on to the different regions and then it goes down to the local level at the end of the day you have to have the locals play a big role you have to have the regions play a big role and then you have to have the state play a big role and there has to be coordination through all of that um, and i mentioned that just because that's really how the manner in which 988 is laid out is that it is a statewide responsibility to provide that service but you don't want state agencies going in and doing that. You have to make sure that you're coordinating with each of the regions. You make sure you're coordinating with the cities and the counties, because a response for someone who lives in Seattle is very different for a response for someone who lives in Moses Lake. And we had a question about rural and, um, and urban settings. And it's very, very critical that we be respectful and mindful of the issues and the difference in geography. So my answer is all of them play a role. And you have to do that coordination. Someone has to be responsible for that coordination. Someone has to make sure that these services are being offered. And it is not simply about having a phone number of people call and you get a response because the question becomes, what then? What happens the next day? What happens the week later or two weeks later? And so um, specifically, and I'll just say for the last four years because that's how long I've been a Senator, we really have been taking a look at that continuum of care starting from what happens with pregnant, um, individuals to all the way taking a look at geriatric care and making sure we're beefing up systems at each of those levels. We still have a long ways to go, but every year for the last few years, every single point on the continuum of care has been beefed up and we've tried to provide more accountability and, and transparency in the manner in which that's done. A lot more work ahead, but but know that that and this is really why the behavioral health subcommittee was created in the Senate is that so that we could have someone who is focused on taking a look at the delivery of services for that entire spectrum. And our entire conversation today, I do wanna acknowledge has been geared towards adults. We have not really spoken about the youth. Um, And I just wanna say we have an incredible work group, uh, the children's and uh, youth behavioral health um, work group that comes up with recommendations every year. And for the last two years, especially this year, we have funded every single one of those recommendations because we have to make sure that we are providing intervention as early on in the process as possible and uh, in a non-crisis situation. People who need services when they're ready for it should have access to those services. And that's what we are going towards hopefully sooner rather than
0: later in the state. I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads with that. Um, a couple more questions here. Um, Kayla asks, are there time differences or delays in response time from these different models in comparison to the standard police department response? It's kind of a broad question because we're looking at a lot of different uh, models here that we've spoken about here tonight, but um, let's just take Coates, for example, Tim. Is, is, there an apple, is there an apples-to-apples comparison you can make here?
3: You know it it's not unheard of to uh, wait much longer uh, to get a case response than to get a police officer and that is really an issue of capacity if we had three more units responding to calls for service at the same time i would argue that you would be seeing us showing up even sooner uh, than law enforcement does to, to most of our crisis situations but really um our um our slower response times uh, when they do occur are entirely result of of you know, not having the budget to really adequately staff the type of response, the level of response that we need.
4: If I can follow up on that, because to me, this was really key when we are talking about the 988 system, just so that people know, um, the 988 system does come with a fee. There's going to be a fee on our cell phones and it's 40 cents a month, and that's going to pay for this. Um, and to me, it was very important that they be a dedicated fee because we've seen over and over again, that when people have these great ideas and these great programs, they're not funded at the right level. And so that fee is put in there to really provide the services and the support that are needed for, um, for the 988 system. And one of the key things that we're looking at is really what is that response time? If we expect law enforcement to show up within 20 minutes, what are our expectations when you call 988 on when they should show up? And what does uh, and you know, there's this this math um, that someone has come up with that based on your population, these are how many mobile units you need in order to respond. And so we have, you know plugged in our state population and tried to figure out from there how many um, um, uh, mobile units we need. But some of the really interesting data that's coming out from some of the other states, especially Georgia, is that when you have individuals answering the call, like on a 988, which would be different than 911, and if you have those individuals who are actually able to problem solve and deescalate and provide next day appointments, there are many times that you can resolve that matter without needing someone to show up at the door. But I think this it, it is very key. Should the expectation be the same? That if you're not able to resolve the issue or deescalate telephonically, um, what should the response time be? And and to me, it needs to be very similar to that law enforcement response time.
0: Question from Corin, uh, and Amy, I'll direct this to you. Are uh, people uh, consulting with people with disabilities over these programs, uh, particularly um, uh, groups that represent people who have hearing impairment or autism? And, and if so, who are some of the groups that you're aware of who are being uh, consulted?
2: Um, actually, I think that varies by... Um, where you are, whether the, the groups that are getting together to kind of make these plans. Um, I know that the ARC has been involved in some stuff at the national level um, and likely their chapters at, at the local level. I'm, And I know even in Chicago, um, Access Living has been involved in providing feedback there. Um, I don't necessarily have a great sense of more broadly who's involved.
0: And Tim, would you have any thoughts on that, in terms of the way that CAHOOTS has uh, uh, consulted with with different groups?
3: Uh, You know, it's funny, we've actually spent some time in conversation with Access Living, but right now we are in the process, um, thanks to um, some increased resources, to be able to bring in the subject matter experts that we need. Um, And so we're really excited to um, continue to move forward with, uh, you know, I would argue, a, a deeper bench of subject matter experts.
0: Uh, We have a question from Roger, um, and he asks, are CAHOOTS uh, mental health professionals trained in implicit bias and other racial profiling issues that we see with police?
3: Yes, Um, we don't have as much of an emphasis right now on racial profiling specifically, um, but we have really over the last couple of years, ramped up uh, how much training there is offered, not just to new staff, but to staff who've been with our program for years around implicit bias, you know, DEI. um, Most recently, uh, the CAHOOTS team was able to participate in some training around uh, restorative justice. And so we are really uh, making, you know, increased commitments to our our local community to to do better, to learn more, uh, and to really help further that in addition to trainings is that we've formed a stewardship council Uh, representatives from impacted populations uh myth in our community have an opportunity to come to the table with cahoots leadership on a regular basis talk about what's working well what isn't and give us that direct feedback you know that we so desperately need to be able to serve truly serve our whole community
0: just a couple more questions, and then I'll, I'll let you all uh, uh, head off into the evening, and I so appreciate you taking the extra time here. Uh, so, Senator Dingra, this is for you. Uh, Bellevue City Council Member Jan uh, hello to you, uh, asks, it sounds like the 9-11 dispatcher is a key role to understand what questions to ask and the nuance to determine what response is needed. In our area, in Bellevue, we have a regional NORCON system. Does the state funding help with 9-11 dispatch training for this?
4: So there is, uh, we've been actually doing that 911 uh, training in, in general for dispatch. Um, the 988 is really having a separate dispatch system. The 988 is supposed to be staffed by individuals who have experience in, in behavioral health that have the expertise to do a lot more than simply what we require our dispatch for 911 to do. And um, you know, I can talk a lot more in detail about this, but part of this comes up with a different um technology um background i mean this is really something where we're hoping that our less restrictive alternative orders can go on where behavioral health advanced directives can be on so the individual who's answering the call is simply not following a tree but they're actually able to sit there take a look at the individual talk to them if they're on a civil commitment less restrictive alternative Be able to say, okay, let me call your case manager. Let's see if we can figure out a plan. Like, really spend the time and the energy to resolve that issue. If someone is running out of meds, be able to say, okay, I've spoken to your case manager. We have a plan for you to pick up these prescriptions from this place tomorrow morning. Or let's make sure we do something for you. So it's not not equivalent to a 911 dispatch. The requirements for the 988 uh, individual is going to be a lot more and require a lot more um, Uh, expertise. Right now, we do that through the suicide uh, prevention hotlines, right? You get in King County, you get referred to the crisis clinic and they are able to provide that level of service. So it really is taking back to the next level. And there is training absolutely for the 988 uh, individuals that we will be ramping up and uh, making sure that this coordination between 911 operators and the 988 so they can do a seamless COORDINATION um, TO MAKE SURE, AGAIN, THAT THE RESPONSE IS APPROPRIATE.
0: We have one final question from Simone that is for all panelists, and she says, I wonder what it would look like to change the whole job requirement to be a police officer if we recognize this is a serious job with serious responsibilities that has an incredible impact on society and public well-being, then why it is harder to work in other industries than law enforcement? Um, Amy, I, I think what she's maybe driving at is that does this, in your opinion, require a rethinking of, of ultimately what it means to be a police officer. I mean, in this one in particular instance, when we're talking about behavioral response to behavioral your health, we're we're really looking, I think, in some people's minds to sort of take some of the burden off of police officers in other areas. So, is is a redefinition of how we think about police officers in, in line here?
2: I, I think absolutely there is. Um, I think we need to really rethink about and limiting the role that that we want them to play and what communities want police to play and what their area of expertise is i do think we do also need to look at then who do we want in those jobs what are what is the criteria to for entry into the field what what is the training what is the preparation but also then what is the how do we address when there's issues so i think there's a lot of rethinking um who go who is hired into policing and how that goes Um, at the same time i think we need to narrow the scope of their their job
0: but tim I'll, i'll just shoot the same question to you
3: yeah, uh, ending on an easy one, too. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think we need to broaden it a little bit. It's not just about police. I think we need to really reevaluate how we define public safety at large. Um, you know, there was a point in time where uh, before the Freedom House started running ambulances in Philadelphia that police were how you got to the hospital. Right, And now we know that when you break your leg, you're having a heart attack. It's going to be a paramedic that takes you. It's not going to be an officer throwing you in the back of that squad car with those handcuffs, right? And so I think we're at that same moment now with looking at what first response for behavioral health crisis, for addiction, for poverty, for housing really means and recognizing that we need a new class of first responder to be able to handle those emergencies in our communities.
0: Senator Dingra, you get the last word, um, and you work very closely with law enforcement. What's your assessment?
4: And you know, I think it's important for our law enforcement officers to work with survivors with trafficking. Take a look at sexual assault. Take a look at crimes involving other individuals. And I think there's a role for them to play there. Um, but they're not mental health professionals. Um, they do not work in the area of homelessness and poverty. And and. And I don't think they should. So I think we, as a society, have to determine what are we deeming to be illegal and what we're deeming to be legal. Um, and again, behavioral crisis is not illegal, so they should not be in the business of doing that. Being homeless is not illegal. Let's make sure they're not in the business of dealing with that. Um, and really taking a look at what we need them to do. And I'd absolutely want them to work with vulnerable adults and children and, and survivors of violence. Um, and so I think they have a role to play there. We have we are one of the worst states in terms of trafficking in the, in the world. I would love for them to spend a lot more time in dealing with human trafficking. I would really like them to go ahead and work on all the sexual assault cases and the backlog that we have on our rape kits. So there's work for them to do there. But I think they need to focus on crimes against um, uh, other humans.
0: I think we're going to leave it here tonight. I I will just say, from my perspective, this has been an enormously, enormously impactful discussion tonight. Um, Again, I want to thank uh, Sally Foucher and uh, Heather Kelly for for helping put this together. And of course, thanks to my partner in crime, Kat Pipkin, and also uh, Louise Pathé, everybody with WIN. And of course, thank you to all of our amazing panelists. Dr. Amy uh, Catherine Watson, thanks to you.
2: Thank you. I was glad to be here.
0: Tim Black, thanks to you, my friend. Thank you. Pleasure. And Senator Makadinger, always a pleasure to speak with you.
4: Me too. I love being uh, talking to all of you guys. Thank you so much for having this really important discussion.
0: Special thanks to Sally Fouché, Heather Kelly, Laura Van Tosh, Robin Gittleman, Louise Pathé, and Kevin Jones. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. If you'd like to get in touch, our email is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.